Good morning. These opening words are written by our senior leader, Amanda Poppy, who this Sunday is camping with many of our young families. Who are we? We ask each other, who are we in this community? What are the names, the faces, the stories that make up this people? Who are we? We ask ourselves, who are we at this moment in our lives? Who have we been and who are we becoming? Who are we? We ask the universe, who are we in this wide world? What meaning do our lives hold? Who are we? The answer surely is not just one thing or another, but a tapestry of possibility, a continual unfolding, a series of responses that change and shift with time. Who are we? We know from the very moment of our birth, and we are always discovering and creating the answer. This morning, you are welcome to this place, this hour, this moment's answer to the question, who are we?
Thank you so much, that was beautiful. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Rajesh Vidyasaga, and I am so glad you're here this morning, whether you're in the room or joining us on Facebook. I'm delighted to have with me today West member Barbara Churchill, uh, who many of you know, and Gail Danley, a nationally award-winning poet who shared her poetry with us many times in the past, and we're really looking forward to her uh, sharing her work today. Uh, we are so glad to have you with us again, Gail. Visitors and guests, we hope that you have a blue name tag so we can welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We love talking about why this community is important to us, and we'd like to hear from you what you are looking for. We hope you join us after the platform for cookies uh, and coffee in the lobby and the social hall. Also, please consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet, which you can pick up at the welcome table outside. You can drop that sheet in the collection basket as it passes later in the platform service. I want to remind you, please, to silence your electronic devices so that you can be fully present this morning. Uh, although we'd love it if you could check uh, in on social media uh, from time to time. Uh, uh, now, I'd really appreciate if someone could... Ah, oh, there he is, Alex. And now I invite Alex, who is one of our ushers today, to read our statement of purpose uh, so we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. Uh, Alex represents the ushers, uh, who are a really important part of the success of the platform. So thank you, Alex. And The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you, Alex. And as Alex lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. I'm particularly mindful this Memorial Day weekend of all those who've lost their lives in war and in peacetime service. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world.
and let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. In honor of the day, I offer these words, slightly adapted from Unitarian Universalist Minister Wayne Arneson. We enter into the season of Memorial Day surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses. We remember, first of all, people who are currently serving in the armed forces, and we pray for their safe return. We also acknowledge that, for, that there are people who will not return as we grieve their passing. We pause to honor their service and their sacrifice. We also pause this hour to give thanks for all the people who have served in the nation's armed services. Those who have not served cannot fully imagine the experience of war, but we do know war's aftermath and the toll that it can take on the human heart. This day remembers and acknowledges loss, and so do we remember those whom we have loved and lost. We hold their names and their faces in our mind's eye. We recall the gifts they gave us through the strength of their being, the depth of their love, the courage of their dying, and the fullness of their living. In the quiet of this hour, their names surround us and they live with us in memory. May we remain together in silence as a tribute to all that they have meant to us.
people die on the news tonight But not so many cried at the terrible sight And Mama said, it's just make-believe You can't believe everything you see So baby, close your eyes to Good morning. I'm not sure what I know, but I know this. The whole nature of being a poet is to keep on questioning. And even when you don't find the answers, you keep on writing anyway, just so hopeful that one day, whatever you need and whatever you are seeking will come. So, I don't know, maybe you can tell me on the way out, uh, well, I think, Miss Gale, what you know this based on the poems you, you shared. I-20 West cuts through my hometown, Atlanta, like stitches on a busted lip. Drive this two-lane highway long enough and Atlanta University will rise up in your right side mirror and six flags will scream in your left. 35 minutes later, you will arrive at Stone Mountain, a bloated boulder enslaving the sky. Two plantations wide, but it's short compared to the mountains 
shackling my mind. My daddy carved it each time he said, you just can't get it together, can you, Gail? <laughs> Gail, you so stupid. And then I took it from there. Handcuffed his voice to my heart, ricocheting his words through my brain, my soul. You just can't get it together, can you, Gail? <laughs> you just you're just stupid, you're, you're so book smart, but you have no street until it burned and left ashes inside of me. Some Georgians say Stone Mountain needs to be sandblasted. They say the Civil War generals carved on its broad face ain't heroes. That sounds like a hard job to me, tearing it down. I need to tear down my mountains too. That sounds like a very hard job. Like breaking stitches only to suture them again, like the ricocheting of a whip, like, can I change it? Like, you're so capable, Gail. Woo, Gail, you're so brilliant. Ah! Gail, you got it all together. Yeah, you do. You go, Gail. You go, Gail. I-20 West escorts you to Stone Mountain if you drive long enough. That's my city's chain, shackling it east to west. One day its face might be flat and smooth, a new canvas, free from the images that scar it. Me too. what I know. I just, I just keep writing it down and then hoping, just hopeful. I went to dinner last summer on the anniversary of my mom's death um, with a girlfriend. We've been friends since college. I was so happy to see her. I kept changing clothes. I was asking my husband, should I wear this? I'm like, ah, I'm going out with my friend Lee Shoe, man. And I noticed over dinner that she kept asking me about the Lord. And you all know, too, sometimes how oppressive that can be. You know, it's like whipping you down, right? And I wanted to talk to her about that guy that she dated when we were sophomores and <laughs> how many wives he had. Anyway, I know what it's like to be 14 and wait six months for blood that won't come. I know how mama screamed when she found out, but we were, new, we were too middle class to go through with this, so I know. Alabama, I know. How saline hisses as it drips inside your belly, I know. Being 14 and squatting on a hospital floor crying for your mother. They made us girls go through it alone. Oh, I know the afterbirth of shame. 
I know how to pray for a rainbow because it's all the color I can afford, licking the sky so lusciously, but just like your daddy disappearing behind your car. I know the smell of stink, how the fragrance never washes off your fingertips. I know how an angry palm stings your face. I'm very familiar with failure and how your legs go numb when the doctors hand you back your mother and explain how hospice works. She'll get weak, weaker. I know how to make ramen noodles taste like steak. I know the majesty of making love. And I know that virginity has nothing to do with sex, I know the lyric to every Al Green song I've ever heard. I know how many meals my Aunt Ruth skipped to buy my textbooks for Howard University. I know mama's work shoes were a half size too small. I know mama's feet are never pretty. I know how the inside of a paddy wagon smells like tears. I can't remember if that dude cuffed me. And I know that three times my body has become a red river transporting souls to the mountains that data call me mama. I've known rivers of insecurity and last breaths and anxiety that keeps me from planes and strangles, then dragged me outside to the 4 a.m. shade beneath a magnolia tree kissing the top of my head because she, because she has lost her mother too. Ask me about a mama who loaned me to her sister to raise so I could have life and have it more abundantly. I bled tears. This is my scripture. If I don't know the Lord, y'all, if I don't know the Lord, then my mama never loved me. And her life was just a dream. And I'll never wake up and find her and find her. Yeah. I know God. Hi. Amanda asked me to speak um, this morning for the month of curiosity about something in my life that a lot of you might not be aware. Um, I'm a member of a theatrical union uh, in my job, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. And uh, I'm now president of my local 868, which represents treasurers and ticket sellers. Now in the union, um, a treasurer is actually sort of a union term for a box office manager. And when I got my degree uh, in English back in the 70s, um, I had always been drawn to the performing arts. I had always loved, as a teenager, I studied to be a dancer and then I went off to college and was a theater major for a while, but um, came back to DC and just the only thing I could do in my part-time jobs was work in a theater. 
Uh, I worked in the Kennedy Center as an usher. I worked at Wolf Trap Farm Park in the box office. And I got the opportunity to get a union position at the National Theater uh, down at 13th and E Street, uh, which was pretty amazing for a 22-year-old. Um, the union at that time, you know, I've been a member ever since I was 22, and as I have changed, the things that I really wanted from the union have changed too. At 22, it gave me um, the independence to be able to have my own apartment and support myself, gave me a family of other union members, and it gave me this incredible rich history because I was mentored by people who had gotten the charter for the local in the 50s and had worked at the National Theater their entire lives. Uh, the treasurer at the time of the theater had started working there as a water boy before they had air conditioning when he would run up and down the aisle with little cups of water for people because it was so hot. And the theater would just, it, they closed down in the summer. You know, they couldn't have performances. But he'd worked his way up to the box office, and he and two other people just gave me this amazing experience of being in a tradition and learning a craft. I mean, when I started out, we had hard tickets, um, which was very different than all the computer ticketing systems now. But as the industry changed, I moved into becoming a treasurer at the National, using the computer ticketing system. And then eventually I moved to the Kennedy Center to be a treasurer. And we worked very hard at the Kennedy Center in the box office to keep the work that we had. And that was one of the real benefits of being in a union, was that we were involved in all, the all things ticketing and they wanted to move a lot of our work to the IT department. And we said, no, train us. You can't get rid of us, train us on how to do the work because we're the best qualified. So we learned things about ticket design and dynamic pricing and building venues, um, setting up a season in the computer ticketing area. Um, it's really been an amazing journey and for me, um, it's kind of made me go out of my comfort zone. Being president of a local, I've had to speak in front of groups that I never thought I'd be able to before. I got to help celebrate our 60th anniversary a couple of years ago. Um, through our international, I've gotten to uh, take classes in things like labor law and negotiating. Uh, union organizing, and just a couple of years ago, about five years ago, we were approached by the box office at Strathmore Hall Arts Center, and they asked if we would represent them uh, with management, and we did, expecting that since there were other unions there, it would be kind of a slam dunk. Well, it didn't end up being that way at all. Uh, management was extremely resistant to having a union box office, and we went through three years of basically, even though it was, you know, unanimous in the box office, everybody wanted uh, Local 868 to represent them. We, we had to go to the NLRB a couple of times. 
we had took us two years to get a contract, but now we have uh, 20 new members who are making you know a living wage, and uh, we have a whole other venue under our wing, which has really been an amazing journey and something that we probably would think again about organizing. We <laughs> because it was very time consuming, it was hard. Um, anyway, one other little story. When I was the treasurer of the National Theater, most of the people there didn't have families. They had devoted their lives to the theater and I wanted in my 30s to do it all. I wanted to have children as well as be a box office treasurer. And I remember that um, the uh, management didn't quite know what to do with me. When I got pregnant and was planning to go on maternity leave, they were, well, we're gonna audit you and then you're gonna have to step down because we don't even know if you're gonna come back. And I said, well, that's illegal. <laughs> you can't do that and I am planning to come back. So once I pointed this out to them, they, they changed their tune. Um, and I ended up working to my due date for both my daughters. Um, I actually, you know, my water broke for my second daughter right in the theater. <laughs> and I remember telling my assistant, she's early, so I'll probably be late for work. And she goes, no, you won't be late for work. <laughs> You're not coming back today. But anyway, um, the union has given me an amazing family. I've worked with the same people over 40 years. And uh, like any family, we, you know, we have our ups and downs. But it's been an amazing journey that um, I feel very privileged to uh, having been a part of. Thank you. So, in the spirit of sharing and continuing the sharing, thank you, Barbara. In 1951, I was born in Hyderabad in India. In 1952, one year later, the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual declared homosexuality a mental disorder. Starting out really well. <laughs> I had an idyllic childhood, but in 1959, at the age of eight, I was dispatched to a boarding school 600 miles away from home because I needed toughening up. Over the years, I became an expert at meeting expectations. In 1969, between June 28 and July 1, 1969 to be precise, drag queens led the gay community in a revolt against a police raid at the Stonewall Inn in New York City. That became the symbol for the start of the gay revolution in this country. That same year, I was at college in India, a high-achieving, smart, very hardworking, and very unhappy young man 
deep in the closet, inhabiting and lurking in a gray world beneath the social radar screen. In 1971, gay pride parades were held in Boston, Dallas, Milwaukee, London, Paris, West Berlin, and Stockholm. That year, in 1971, I was at Oxford, in love with my best friend, but never acknowledging it to him, or indeed to myself. In 1972, while doing my PhD at the University of Massachusetts, I was invited to a party hosted by what was then called the Student Homophile League. <laughs> After agonizing over it for about a couple of hours, I decided not to go. In 1973, the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from its DSM list of disorders. That year, however, depressed, unable to function, and seeing little meaning in my economics courses, I abandoned my studies and went home. In 1974, I met a wonderful woman, and we were married in 1976. We had two beautiful children and created a loving home. I continued to struggle silently with my sexual identity, exercising enormous willpower to walk the straight and narrow. In the meantime, during the 80s, thousands of good people died of AIDS in the US and in Europe. During this time in India, I climbed the professional ladder rapidly, and in 1990, I'd reached a top position in one of the largest companies in the country. With this advancement came more and more pressure. And in 1990, I was unable to hold it all together. Close to a breakdown, I came out to my wife and received the most incredible understanding and support from her. We decided to stay together. In the meantime, good men and women continue to die by the thousands of AIDS in the US and in Europe and more and more in Africa and Asia. In 1995, I was offered an opportunity to go to work for the World Bank in DC. My wife and I decided to take this for, for many reasons, including, uh, as she said, you may have a chance to change your life. In 1998, I came out to my children. It was not easy on any of us. The difficult and painful road to healing had only just begun. That year, I joined the Gay Married Men's Association in DC called Gamma and found to my utter amazement that I was not alone. As I had stepped out into the light between 1998 and 2000, I was on stage at the studio theater for a whole four months, the duration of the Tom Stoppard play, Indian Inc., and did two more plays thereafter. In 2003, the Supreme Court in the US struck down the sodomy laws in Texas 
in the Lawrence versus Texas case. That year, now that we were empty nesters, my wife moved back to India to work and take care of her aging parents. Our family is still extremely close and the bonds of love are very strong. In 2016, my then partner and I joined Wes and discovered a welcoming community. I'm now in a fresh and joyful new relationship. Over the past few years, I have moved slowly forward on a journey from the twilight into the sun. I feel much more complete, and my, much more available in all my relationships, but the personal journey continues. Last year, I began my foray into storytelling and uh, told a story on stage at the Story District in downtown DC. The same year, the Indian Supreme Court decriminalized homosexuality, and that's great news. Sadly, however, I read in the post yesterday that the High Court in Kenya turned down a similar petition, dashing the hopes of LGBTQ people across Africa. Around the world, the journey of marginalized people continues. Thank you all for your support for social justice, equality, dignity, and respect for everybody.
face of evil pain to make you its possession and it will if we let it destroy If love and peace you treasure, then you'll hear me when I say, is that a love's in need of a love to so more sharing we now invite you to turn to your neighbors